<laughs> um, I'm Jason. Um, I was a youth pastor in Vernon for a number of years, so I know this church a little bit. I've never been here for Sunday morning, but I've been here for meetings and stuff like that. Um, moved here about four and a half years ago to go to uh, get my master's degree at Regent. And been helping out with Acts 29, just like two blocks over. Uh, so it's great to be here this morning. I'm excited to be here with you. I was read this morning. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where, like, you kind of overhear people's conversations, and uh, then you ask them about it. So just yesterday, this happened to me. Uh, we were at home, and my two youngest girls, Kyla and Gabrielle, they're supposed to be putting their clothes away in their room. And I can hear all this noise going on, and you could tell it's not putting clothes away. So I walk up to the room, I kind of open the door, and Kyla's climbing up something. I'm not even sure what she's on top of. She's way up high, and Gabrielle is just yabbering away. And uh, I say, hey, girls, what are you doing? And immediately Kyla jumps down and runs to the laundry basket and says, I'm putting away my laundry, Daddy. <laughs> Which was great. And I said, oh, good, I'm glad you're doing that. Um, that was, I'm sure we've all had kind of, especially if your parents had experiences like that. And Jesus kind of has that same experience here in Mark, which was just read for us, where him and his disciples are kind of walking along, and they're going to Capernaum there, and uh, he can tell his disciples are just, like, arguing, and they're kind of arguing with each other and bickering and stuff. And uh, he knows exactly what's going on, because uh, it's, usually it's pretty easy to tell by body language if people are arguing. Uh, so they get to their place, and Jesus just comes up to them and asks, hey, what were you guys talking about? And uh, like a typical response when you're kind of caught, just complete silence. And they're kind of like looking at each other, and they know they've been caught. But uh, unlike me, who just kind of let it go yesterday with my daughters, Jesus doesn't let it go. He actually confronts them about the issue. He confronts them about the issue of who is the greatest. Because there's a deeper issue going on here. It's not just an issue of arguing about if I'm a good person or not. The issue has to do is what is my social standing compared to you? And I am a better person than you. And this is one issue that Jesus and God cannot let go and just pass over. It's a huge issue. So Jesus sits them all around, and when he, he talks to them, and he says, the way you think about who is greater is not the way God thinks about who is greater. Um, in that society, kind of like ours, the issue of where you stand compared to other people is a huge issue. We have it here today, too. Um, I run into it myself all the time. As was mentioned, I kind of work at chapters. And I've been there for a couple of years now, and I used to work in the kids' department, which was awesome. I got to leave story time with kids and play with kids. And if you ever work at chapters, which probably none of you ever will, um, kids' department's the best place because you get to play with all the toys. Everyone else has to, you know, look nice and know all the books, whereas in the kids' department, it's all about playing with kids and playing with toys. So I started off there, and then um, over the last four months or five months, uh, they've kind of been getting me more into a management side. Um, I'm actually in the chapters that's closing on Robson Street. So uh, it's getting to the point where everyone's leaving, and so they just kind of, please, Jason, help out, because you know at least something about the store. Um, and as I've been kind of going into this management role, I find that this competitive side in, in nature growing up inside me, where now I want to kind of be better than everyone else. And so it's like you're checking all these like sales figures and sales numbers, and you want to be better than anyone else that's working with you. And so I find that I'm always comparing myself, and I have to keep checking myself and say, no, it doesn't matter if I'm doing a worse job or a better job. It, it, this isn't the way that the kingdom of God works. This isn't the way it's supposed to operate. Um, 
But we can get into this mindset of thinking, am I better than this person? You know, this morning, am I going to be a better speaker in front of you this morning than whoever you had last week or whoever you'll have next week? And you, there's this thing that can go inside of you as preachers even of, I got to be better than the next person or better than that person you listen to on CD or on tape or something. That you want to always kind of be better. And this is the same thing that disciples are going through. Their society kind of worked the same way where they had this um, patron, this client relationship going on. Where you had this guy, usually who was quite wealthy and rich, and he would pay people who would go around talking about how great they are. Which would be an interesting job, where you would wake up, and your job was that first thing in the morning, you'd wake up and go to the guy's house and just start telling people how great this guy is who's paying you. And the idea was that the more you talked about him, the better he would look and the better positions he would get. And then hopefully, you, the guy who's getting paid, would be remembered by the guy who got promoted, and he would kind of promote you as well. And it was all about where your standing is compared to other people, about being greater than that next person, and kind of working your way up this social ladder. And that's what the disciples are arguing about here. Who is greater? I'm greater than you. I'm sitting this side of Jesus. I get to walk with Jesus. Jesus brings me along on the special trips. Um, They're arguing about who is greater than the other person. And Jesus has no time for this. He puts a stop to it right away and tells them the exact opposite thing. He tells them, whoever wants to be first has to be last and the servant of all. One of the problems we have so often in churches is that these stories, we hear them all the time. We've grown up with them. I grew up in a church, and I've heard this story I don't know how many times. And when you hear something sometimes over and over again, it's easy to kind of forget about it or just say, well, oh yeah, that's the message of the servant, and we kind of let it go and let it pass over. And we don't allow the true nature, the shocking nature of this statement by Jesus to really grab hold of us. That here, if you want to be first in the kingdom, if you want to be a great person in the kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. You have to be the last person. This is very much the upside-down kingdom. And it's interesting what's been going on in Mark at this point. If you start at the beginning of chapter Mark, you have the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus and, and um, John and Peter and James, they all go up to this mountain together, right? And all of a sudden, when they're on this mountain, this transfiguration happens with Jesus, where all of a sudden he gets these clothes, which become like dazzling white, and they can barely look at him because he's so white. And um, Elijah and Moses show up and join with Jesus. And it's this huge, big deal going on. And then after this happens, they come back down the mountain. And there's this dad with a boy who's possessed by a demon. And everyone's been trying to cast out this demon. No one can do it. And Jesus comes down and just takes care of the whole thing. And so you have these huge displays of power. You have these huge displays of Jesus hanging out with really important people. You have these huge displays of Jesus just dazzling like God himself on this mountain. And yet, when Jesus comes to say, who is the greatest? He doesn't say, I'm the greatest, because look at this. I'm associating with Moses and Elijah. I can cast out demons. You can't. That means nothing to Jesus. What makes Jesus great is that he's the servant of all. That is what Jesus says is what makes me great. We find the same thing in Philippians. If uh, you read Philippians chapter 2, a passage many of us know, but if you read it, especially if you read the NRSV, the NRSV kind of captures really what's going on in that passage. In the NRSV it says in Philippians 2, 5 to 6, 
Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Though, or you can even put, because he was in very nature God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. You get that? Because Jesus is God, he did not think his godness, his power, his authority, was something to be used for his own advantage. Why does Jesus say the greatest in the kingdom is the one who's servant of all? Because that's the very character, the very nature of the God we serve. The very nature of the God we serve is a God who is giving of himself rather than using his power for his own benefit. This is huge. I mean, today too, then too, right? You had emperors who were like using their authority to burn down cities because they wanted to build a new house for themselves. You had people who were always using their advantages, using their power, using their authority in order to reap benefits for themselves. Today, we have people who use their money, use their position in order that they can raise themselves up. And yet, the very nature of the God we serve is to not use his authority, his power, his position for his own advantage. This gets to the very heart of who our God is. Understand, when we, have, when we come to this great God that we serve, we cannot bring our own thoughts to it. This is why God says, I am who I am. Or as I heard recently somebody put it, don't guess about who I am. Because often when we try to guess who God is, we get it wrong. Because we guess about who God is based on our own experiences, based on this world. And God says, don't do that with me. I am not like any other person or any other God that you have ever encountered. I am completely different. This is why in the Exodus story, you know, in Exodus they come out and Moses goes up the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments and um, all the Israelites, right, they're gathered at the base of the mountain and Moses is gone for a while and they decide, let's just build a golden calf. And for us, we think, well, that's just crazy. You should know better than that. Right? That God, you shouldn't build an idol to worship God. But understand where they're coming from. These Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years, something like that, as slaves. All they've known their entire lives is Egypt and how Egypt worshipped their gods. And so they know from their experience that when you want to worship a god, you build an idol to them. That's how you worship a god. So they're thankful to this great god, Yahweh, who has redeemed them. So how do we worship this god? Let's build an idol. Let's build a calf because the calf represents power and our God is a powerful God. So they build this calf and they start worshiping it. And God gets angry because that's not who I am. Don't guess who I am. Get to know me as the God Yahweh. Don't guess because I am not like the gods of Egypt. I am someone completely different. Get to know who I am. I am who I am. Don't guess who I am. And that's why God gets so upset. He's not to be treated as if he's another god like from Egypt. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, it, it continues on, right? Let me find it here. Right. Let your same mind be that is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or used for his own advantage. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why does, Jesus, why does God glorify Jesus? Not because he was able to cast out demons. Not because he could walk on water. God glorifies Jesus because he gave of himself and died on a cross for other people. Because he did not consider his godness something to be used for his own advantage. Because he used it for the advantage of others, gave himself up for others, that being the very character of God, Jesus is exalted, lifted up, glorified. And who receives the glory? God the Father receives the glory. Why? Because Jesus showed exactly what God the Father is like. The sacrifice of Jesus is exactly the character of God the Father, a one who sacrifices himself for other people. In Exodus 17, this is a great story. I'm just telling lots of stories today because that's how we learn about who our God is. Exodus 17 is a story. Again, Israelites have come, just come out of Egypt, right? And they're wandering around this desert. And those of you who know their Old Testament know they complained a lot. So they're complaining this time. And they're complaining about water, that they haven't any water. Why would God bring us out here just to die? Who is this God? Is this a God who just brings us out to die? And so they're complaining to Moses about this. And God's reply, Moses goes to God and says, God, these people are going to kill me. Do something. So God says, okay, go ahead of them, Moses. Take the staff that you used to strike the Nile. Go ahead, Moses. I'm going to stand on that rock over there. Take your staff, strike the rock, and water will come out. This is what Moses does, and water comes out. Incredible story. You know why? Because who does Moses actually strike? It is not the rock that is giving them water to drink. Who is standing on the rock? God is standing on that rock. And why does God specifically say, take that staff that you struck the Nile with and strike it? This staff struck the Nile. What happened when Moses struck the Nile? Moses struck the staff with the Nile. The Nile turned to blood. Why? Because so many babies had been thrown into that Nile and killed in that Nile. When Moses struck the Nile with the staff, the true nature of that water turned, was revealed. The Nile wasn't a river of life. The Nile was a river of blood and death. The staff reveals the true nature of it. Now Moses takes that very same staff and strikes this rock which God is standing on. He strikes God. And what is the true nature revealed of God? Life-giving water comes pouring out of him. This is our God, guys. This is our God. When people are thirsty, he doesn't just magically poof water out. When the people are thirsty, he says, strike me. Strike me and drink. My nature is one to give life to you. This is the nature of the God that we serve. It's a God who sacrifices himself so we can have water. A God, we said, who created 
just mentioned, creates everything out of nothing. And yet, when he could have just snapped his fingers, if he had fingers, spoken a word and water could have just formed, he doesn't do that. He says, strike me, and I will bleed out water for you to drink, for you to live. If you go back to Mark, after Jesus makes this really shocking statement, he then takes this child, right? He comes and he takes this child with him. And uh, <laughs> he, he takes a little child, and I love the translation, whoever read from, it was perfect. That's exactly the translation they want you to read from. It was the NRSV again, who says, uh, where is it here? Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Jesus takes this little child into his arms um, and says, you need to welcome this child. And we read this and we think, oh, it's kind of cute and cuddly. I like my children. I love my children. Um, and and we, in society today, right, we, we have a great respect for children. And we love children. We look out for children. We take care of children. Um, and so when we read this, sometimes we can think, oh, we should welcome the little child because they're kind of cute. And, they're, you know, they mess up and they say really funny things sometimes. But they're really good. And we have this concept of a child being good and innocent and, and pure in some ways. Um, understand, that is not the way they thought of children back then. Um, children then thought of as nothing. As you may have noticed, they don't even have a gender. They're just it's. They're, most people didn't want children. They had a huge problem, actually, in the Roman Empire where no one was having kids. And they had to like, try to bribe people in order to have children. Um, I think I heard a stat once of in like a 400-year period of the Roman Empire, I think there was one biological son who took over the throne. Um, most people, they didn't have kids. They'd adopt adult children or adult people to be their son to take over the throne. That's why adoption is such a big thing then in, in our Bible. Um, people didn't like ch- children. Children were thought of as nothing. They were a pain. They could kill the mother when they were born. They took all your money for food. You had to spend time raising them, and they brought you no benefit whatsoever. Children were thought of as nothing. Um, worse than nothing, they were a pain. Um, <laughs> not my, again, I love my children. I don't think that way. Um, And there's this one letter of this guy whose wife was pregnant, and he's writing his letter to her, and he says, if it's a boy, I guess you can keep it. If it's a girl, just leave it out to be exposed. Just as matter of fact as if you were, like, making a shopping list, just leave it out and let it die out on the fields. Because they're they're not even people. They're nothing. And here Jesus takes this child who no one would have any time for, who people saw as a slave. The word actually there... The word child can also mean servant or slave. It's the same word being used, which should show you kind of what they thought of them. A child was someone you would take advantage of in disgusting ways if you wanted to, and no one would care. Yet Jesus takes one of these children, puts his arms around him in an affectionate way, and says, you must welcome these children. God takes someone who is nothing in the eyes of the world, and says, you welcome them, you're welcoming me. If I want to consider myself to be a child of God, 
That means I need to start to look like a child of God. I need to start to look like my father. And this is what my father looks like. My father, my father God, is someone who welcomes those who everyone else in the society abuses or neglects or doesn't care about. My father is one who would give of himself so that other people could benefit. My father is one who will not use his position or his authority in order to get himself ahead, but uses it and gives of himself so other people can get ahead. And we have to change our mindsets in this. And, I mean, in churches we do really good jobs of giving money. We, we do a really good job of giving sources, of going out into places in Africa or places all over the world when there's a disaster. Christians do an excellent job of being the first responders to a disaster and staying there long after everyone else has gone away. And the world has noticed that. It doesn't always get a lot of airplay, but those who are involved know Christians do an excellent job at that. So we're really good at stuff overseas. But what are we doing here at home is the question. How can we start to apply this here at home? I had a situation at Chapters uh, a few weeks ago. I was working in the, the receiving area where we get all, receive all the boxes. And I was working with a guy, and I was just kind of learning how to do all this stuff. And uh, as we all do, just asked him, how are you doing? <laughs> Expecting the, okay, I'm all right. Um, instead, the guy started sharing with me about his life. And started sharing about how his mother's dying, how he just went to the hospital with a heart issue. His dad, his dad is horrible, that he really doesn't want to be at work, but he can't leave because, we have a, because the store is closing and the severance packages and everything. If he quits now, he loses out all of this stuff, so he can't quit. And he's just like, I don't know what to do. And he's like almost in tears, crying to me. And I was not expecting this. Uh, and so I just kind of take him back and like, I'm so sorry, man. And pat him on the back. Hugging was a little weird at the time. But pat him on the back. Um, and then I was left with the situation of what can I do? And so what I ended up doing is after work that day, going home and spending time looking up ways that he could take time off. And spending time, I didn't spend a lot of time on it because I didn't need to. But spending time taking, um, there's this leave you can take where you can, if your relative is dying, you can take some time off of work. Um, and so I spent time doing this. And the next day I went in there and just told him about this. And it really didn't cost me a whole lot. It cost me like half an hour, an hour of research to figure this out. And he was blown away that I would take my own time in order to help him out, to help him out, to care about him. And it blew him away. This was not a huge sacrifice. And yet, this sacrifice impacted him. It was me taking something that was my own and giving it to him. And now... We have a great relationship where now we talk and now we can share and, and he's still going through a really rough time, but now he considers me like a friend. This is the simple stuff that we can start to do where we can take the initiative on our own time to help someone else. We know someone who's in need. And instead of just maybe money can be a great thing, but actually getting involved in someone's life as well, where we start being involved in whoever, your co-workers, your friends. There's lots of people, I'm sure, around you when you leave here that are in need. And what can we do? What can we give of ourselves? Whether it be 
time, whether it be money, whether it be whatever, our skills, in order to give to them, to sacrifice ourselves to them. I was listening to a teaching before, and um, he was quoting, I, I have it written down, I can't remember his name right now, but if you want it, I can give you his name, the secular author who said, it was Christianity who gave the ancient world its soul. We often complain about how horrible the world is today. The world is nothing compared to what it was during the time of Jesus. Where for your seven-year-old's birthday party, you would throw a gladiatorial games where 30 men would go and kill each other, and that was your entertainment, where all kinds of awful things happen. It was a world where no one was valued as a human being. There was no anything like today. And it was only because of Christians that the world got its soul, that we started valuing people. This was a huge shock and a huge threat to the empire that when Christians would gather together, there would be rich and there would be slaves eating together at the same table and that the rich would listen to what the slaves had to say. This never happened in the ancient world and it threatened the whole society of the ancient world. And this is part of the reason why Christians were persecuted because they listened to what a slave would have to say. This is our heritage. This is who our God is, what our God calls us to do, to be able to lay down our pride of who is the greatest and instead listen to what the slave next to us has to say, eating the meal with him. This is why Paul gets so upset in 1 Corinthians. You're eating without the slaves? Wait, you're ruining the whole thing. The rich are just eating their own food? That's not the way it's supposed to be. And Paul starts, you can just imagine ripping his hair out because that's the way the world operates. That's not the way you are supposed to operate. We eat together. We eat together. We share together. We talk together as equals in the body of Christ because that's who our God is. Our God is one who gives himself for the lowliest person available. Foolishness? Of course. Scandalous? Kind of. But yet, who do we serve? As Paul say, we serve a crucified Messiah. Crucified Messiah. This Messiah who died the death of a slave, who died a death of a traitor. And we say, that's our God? Foolishness. Scandalous. But that's our God. That is our hope. That's a God who came to me, who came to you. And that's why we can gather together. It doesn't matter that I normally attend somewhere else. It doesn't matter that I originally grew up in Ontario and I'm an Awaitful Leafs fan. I am a Leafs fan, and yet I know I can be here with you. <laughs> Why? Because God brought us all together. Canucks and Leafs, rich and poor, all of us are now equal in the body of Christ. Amazing God we serve, isn't it? Amazing. Thank you guys for letting me come. Thanks for letting me share. If we can grab hold of this, this is how we will see people come into our churches. When we start giving of ourselves and lowering ourselves and being the servant of all, however that works, it's not just about going to, you know, downtown Eastside. Not that that's bad, that's good, but it's not just about that. Somehow we've always made it about doing that. It's about giving ourselves to those people we know around us. Giving of ourselves, helping them out, giving our time digging a hole in the ground for them so they can, I don't know, whatever you dig holes in. I'm not a worker, so I don't know what, but dig holes and build houses and frames. Then you will see people come to Christ. 
we turn around this whole way of thinking. Anyway, guys, thank you guys very much.